Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast show in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening once again. I'm William Hosea. Brenton Blanchett of Complex.com, a global youth entertainment and news site, reports that Evanston, Illinois, has become the first U.S. city to offer reparations to its Black residents after the city council voted 8-1 to to distribute $400,000 to eligible households. The reparations are for the effects of years of discriminatory housing practices and will be distributed in the form of up to 25,000 per each household for repairs and home down payments. A March 22nd city council vote established the 400,000 housing grant program. The discussion about paying reparations to Black Americans for years of sustained racist oppression has gained new life during the recent calls for social justice. Evanston is planning to use 3% of marijuana sales taxes to fund reparations. Other cities like Amherst, Massachusetts, Providence, Rhode Island, Asheville, North Carolina, Iowa City, Iowa, and Burlington, Vermont have begun establishing committees to study how to properly provide compensation. Hundreds of communities and organizations across the country also are considering providing reparations to Black people. In addition to the previously named cities, they range from the state California to religious denominations like the Episcopal Church and prominent colleges like Georgetown University in Washington. Evanston is pledged to distribute $10 million over 10 years. Qualifying residents must either have lived in or been a direct descendant of a Black person who lived in Evanston between 1919 to 1969, and who suffered discrimination in housing because of city ordinances, policies, or practices. Alderman uh, Rule Simmons, who proposed the program that was adopted in 2019, said pro-reparation groups have offered pro bono legal assistance if the program is challenged in court. This is set aside for an injured community that happens to be Black that was injured by the city of Evanston for anti-Black housing policies, Simmons said. And finally, joining us tonight to share more light upon this groundbreaking measure is a main catalyst behind this program, Alderman Ruth Simmons of the city of Evanston. Also joining us is bringing on producer Clarence Boone. Alderman Simmons, welcome, excuse me, Alderman Ruth Simmons, welcome to Bring It On. Yes, welcome. I have to say we we cannot express enough how much we uh, appreciate you being here with us because if you know we've been following the news and we can see that you're just blowing up all over the place. Evanston is getting a whole lot of attention, and we're just a small volunteer radio station down here in Bloomington, Indiana. 
and uh, we, we, you know, we can't compete with the big guys. So we really appreciate it. I'm really happy to be here. I'm grateful that you invited me so that I can share um, the facts of what we're doing in our city and share with your community and your listeners. So I've been trained in the movement to prioritize uh, very local and grassroots in uh, stakeholder outlets first. So thank you for having me. Okay, well, let's get right to it then. Um, to begin with, I wanna talk about the uh, eligibility requirements. Um, residents have to have either lived or been a direct descendant of a black person who lived in Evanston between 1919 and 1969, suffering discrimination uh, because of city ordinances, policies, or practices. What was significant about that 50 year time period in Evanston's history that, uh, that was spelled out in those eligibility requirements? Well, um, our, our case is very local and it's specific to Evanston. Um, so this is above and beyond redlining. I've seen that some have reported this is a redlining reparation. This is a Evanston reparation. And for it to pass legal muster, it's important that it is policy that is specifically on our books that were enforced by our city. And in our case, we had uh, zoning ordinances that um, restricted the black community to living in one particular section of our city, the West End of the Fifth Ward. It's where I was born and raised. It's where I've raised my family and where I serve today. And that area uh, was restricted and zoning was um, enforced that reduced the amount of uh, residential ho housing. It also um, reduced the amount of community amenities. It stripped away uh, community amenities like a uh, school and a hospital and it uh, and other community amenities like merchant districts. Um, it devalued the land and it did not allow Black Evanston residents to enjoy the same opportunity at wealth and livability that our white friends and neighbors in town have. So obviously that um, restricted the wealth opportunity of that generation and we have carried and passed down um, that legacy of disinvestment to our families because we've not been able to enjoy um, the opportunity of you know liberty and justice and wealth and opportunity that all of White Evanston has. And that's in addition to the barriers of accessing employment and accessing business opportunities and other forms of economic inclusion and activity that we were excluded from. But specifically, we have um, policy that has now been outlawed uh, with fair housing, that's why our reparation time period ends in 1969, because when redlining was outlawed and we passed and enforced our fair housing laws in 1969, we should have then had access to um, wealth and living throughout the city. But the conditions of um, anti-Blackness that is rooted in the transatlantic slave trade and chattel enslavement and only transitioned down to Jim Crowing and redlining and predatory lending and over-policing and mass incarceration and police terror, um, all of those conditions are still limiting us. So I thought that we would localize the reparation discussion, begin to make urgent and incremental steps towards justice for the black community through policy, appropriate policy legislation with funding and not more uh, ceremonial funding that gave a, um, a statement of commitment and solidarity with no true action. My question to you, Alderman, is um, the money goes to the banks 
or contractors. Is this correct? Um, that is correct. I'd like to expand on that, but that is correct. Okay. And the burden of proof is on the people to come up with their proof, correct? That is correct also. My question is, why is the burden of proof put on the people when the city has documents of redlining and you also have the census so you know who lived where, why couldn't you just use that as a way to, um, uh, to award the uh, reparations? Thank you for the question. Uh, and so there are ways that we looked at having a database to see who might qualify. Um, and, and that would prolong us delivering the reparation benefits to the community. We have sent a exhaustive list of ways you can show your race and place and eligibility for reparations. It includes everything from uh, birth certificates and death certificates to uh, school records, um, classroom photos. Uh, we have a very tight-knit community. We have two historical institutions um, in our community, uh, Shorefront Legacy Museum, as well as the Evanston History Center. And in partnership with them and the community and their own records, uh, we're confident that residents will have no problem in showing their race and place. We can um, identify our community. If we have waited to have a database that would still be partial, it still would be imperfect and not including everyone, and we'd have others that would need to come and show why they weren't on the records. We have uh, black immigrants in our community that are included in this reparation. So this allowed the community to take ownership. It also allowed us to move forward with urgency um, for residents that we know are qualified um, for this reparation benefit. And your question as it related to um, the reparation benefit going to the banker, to the contractor, um, the reparation benefit actually goes to the wealth and the legacy of the family. Most have uh, some type of a mortgage holding um, for home ownership. And in terms of the um, con those that use their benefit for improvements, whatever they choose, it could be deferred maintenance or cosmetic. Um, our goal is that those contracting contracts go to our black contracting community. So there is an additional revenue repair economic opportunity in that $25,000 going directly to a black contractor and sustaining the black dollar in the community. And those are um, highlights that have not been pulled out in most of the discussions that I've heard about our goals here in Evanston and, and acknowledging that it's not a, enough. This also is not a settlement. We're just in the very first step, only in the first 4% of the $10 million that has been allocated. And the fund is growing already by residents, stakeholders, faith, community, synagogues, churches, family foundations that have begun to contribute to the fund to grow it well beyond the $10 million. Okay, because I'm glad that you mentioned that Black-owned businesses, contractors will receive the money because I was going to ask if it was going to the banks, how many Black-owned banks do you have that will benefit from that? So I'm, I'm glad about that. I have other questions, but I will let someone else ask. <laughs> Hi, uh, Alderman. Uh, again, this is uh, Clarence, and thank you for joining us today. Um, I want to go back to this whole concept of reparations, and our listeners out there, many of whom may have heard of reparations before, but many of them may not have. And uh, just a quick look at a definition of reparation, reparations means to correct an injustice in its simplest form to a more elaborate form, which includes 
reparations that may have been offered to uh, African-Americans or the promise of reparations to African-Americans and definitely to Asians who were in internment camps in America. I know that's a famous example where I think they received 1.2 billion collectively as a community. And, and this whole concept of reparations uh, throws me back to a time when the promise of 40 acres and a mule uh, was something that was extended to black people. And can you explain as you crafted this language because you felt the need, you, you knew there's a history in Evanston and you wanted to correct that injustice that was uh, heaped upon people of color. Um, and can you talk about the definition of reparations from your regard? And then also there has been some uh, concerns, some voices out there that have said, well, reparations and housing stops a little bit too short of the full package. We need reparations as far as access to education, um, maybe a correction in the tax um, status or the tax tables for black people. But I want to defer to you. Can you explain going back to reparations and, and talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And Clarence, your definition is absolutely right. But very specifically, as we look at reparations for the black community, this is to address egregious acts crimes against humanity as, um, as stated by the uh, United Nation to the black community and, and bring repair to injustices um, that have been delivered in this case by the city of Evanston and the case of HR 40 by the um, United States government. And these are, our, these are our first steps towards that. Um, we know of you know, 40 acres and a mule and that passing and later being rescinded and and since then, the last 34 years of the pursuit of H.R. 40 in Congress, initially under the leadership of um, Rep. John Connors, now being led by the fearless leader, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, um, we, we right now are in a time in history that I know I've never seen before, that there is a community, and when I say community now, I'm talking about this nation, has been um, punched in the face with what our racist practices are. We've seen it through social media. We've seen it through racial terror, through public lynching of George Floyd and others. And now we have to address the data that we have is directly connected to the various forms of oppression and, and, and various forms of um, anti-Blackness that we see um, being delivered today. So we have, um, we, we've localized our effort, but I need you to know that we are in support as a city of HR 40. In 2002, our reparations work began in the city of Evanston. We passed a resolution then under the leadership of Judge Lionel Jean-Baptiste, who was then the second ward alderman, passed a resolution in support of HR 40 and uh, gave some recommendations to our public school system on what they should be doing in terms of black education inclusion, not just black history, but African history as well, telling our full story. So your point to it falls short, this one program, it absolutely falls short. If this was the closed case and the settlement of our reparations in Evanston, this is the very first step. Some of the recommendations that you've mentioned have been recommended to our city and are under development. We have a community process where the community will weigh in. The community has said education, financial products and, educa and, and financial education. Uh, land acquisition more collectively, not just individual home ownership, access to business uh, grants, uh, access to uh, more representation on our boards, committees, and commissions. Uh, a lot of the work is happening already in Evanston. What you're seeing is this first 
uh, funded tangible project of the um, housing benefit. And then the other thing we have to do is remember what's in our purview. The city of Evanston is not al alone responsible for correcting the damages that we Evanstonians have. We have a Northwestern school district here, uh, Northwestern here in town. We have, that has a ton of uh, real estate in town where, you know, they're not paying taxes. They're a, a world-class institution that could be doing more in su supporting um, our community education-wise. We have a public school system that closed our school in the black community, never to reopen one um, in, in the last 30 years. So our kids in the neighborhood are bust all over the city for us to maintain our beautiful diversity. Uh, we have a business community that has not included uh, the black community in, in, in procurement and other opportunities of economic activity. Uh, we have the real estate industry is hugely responsible, probably the, the number one accomplice in our particular um, housing uh, reparation program because of how they enforce redlining after redlining was outlawed today in steering. We know how the appraisal industry is undervaluing black businesses. We know how banks are still prejudiced in lending even today, um, but those institutions are not within our purview. We can only lead by example as a municipal government. That is absolutely what we're doing. And we have been in discussion with our local banks in town to encourage them to develop a reparation benefit program for our black residents. They have not had the heart yet to do it, but I'm not letting up on them. We are going to keep pushing. We see that the first major US bank has passed a re reparation commitment. They have a, a Chicago branch, we'll be in touch with them, absolutely. Um, but we have to remember that we have 402, 403 years this year of, of, of racial oppression and and, 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 and crimes against humanity that started with kidnapping Africans from the continent, enslaving um, our people, uh, uh, torture, rape, every form of oppression, lynching and Jim Crowing and so on. And we've only now um, just, you know, some would argue that we're nominally free now because we still do not have equal access. And Sir Hillary Beckel says it best that slavery um, is, is outlawed, but we're in the jet streams of the consequences right now. And so what we see in our data cannot be ignored. We cannot ignore in our city that we have a $46,000 household income divide between black residents and our white neighbors and friends. We have 13 years difference in life expectancy between black and white Evanston, and we're not the extreme. Chicago has 30 years different life expectancy be between black and white residents. So we have to take steps. We need to do it united. We don't all agree on what's a priority, but we do know all of it is necessary and we can only take incremental steps. In our case, we're funding it with cannabis uh, revenue taxes, 3%, and that tax revenue is coming in incrementally. So while we do have a $10 million program, we have incremental um, contributions to the fund. And I'm also not okay with waiting until we have $10 million to disperse the funds when we have our people that are leaving town, we have a 16% population right now. That is a drastic decline from about 22 to 25% at one point in our history, only not that long ago in, in 2020, we had in the mid twenties and now we're at 16%. So what I acknowledge is that we are in a state of an emergency. There was an exodus of the black community. We can identify that those reasons are affordable housing, uh, lack of, uh, economic inclusion and lack of a sense of place and reparation certainly is a way to address that 
and, and, and make a commitment to the Black community beyond ceremony and apology, beyond another resolution without any funding to say, we um, are responsible for these acts. We want you to stay here. We want to repair the harms that this city has called the Black community. And these are our first steps in that direction. I just want to jump in and say that the inspiring words that our listeners just heard come from the city of Evanston's Alderman Ruth Simmons, who's joining us today to shed light on groundbreaking reparations measures that were just passed by the city council of Evanston, thus making Evanston the first U.S. city to make reparations available to its black residents for past discrimination and the lingering effects of slavery. And uh, the lady that we just heard was the, the, the author, the crafter, uh, the envisioner of this measure. And we're so proud on bringing on the hammer with us today. I'd like to know, Alderman, if other cities have contacted your city to uh, they, that they want to model after you. Have you heard from other cities? I have. So I'm a, I'm a member of the National League of Cities, and there are 2,400 municipalities and localities that are a part of that membership. I've spoken there. And I'm also a board member of the National Black Caucus of Local Elected Leaders. And so I'm able to speak to my colleagues nationwide regularly. Um, outside of that group, there have been other cities. The most recent is Amherst, Massachusetts that has passed their first step of re reparations. Uh, maybe it's been about three months ago now. And they're working now towards a community process and looking at how they might fund their work. Um, you know, Joe Biden, Joe Biden will need a secretary of reparations here pretty soon. I think he'll he'll know where to look. Um, Alderman Ruth Simmons, Alderman uh, Cicely Fleming was a lone holdout against this program. And she cited uh, issues such as limited participation, not enough autonomy for victims, and that it creates a tax burden. So first part of my question is, do any of her criticisms have merit? And the second part is, has she come along, uh, come around to any of this uh, since the program has been implemented? Um, the first part, does any of the particular, um, so what you just stated, none of it has any merit. Okay. Um, so, so what I will acknowledge is we always want to have as many voices as possible and um, by the uh, legitimacy of this being reparations, it's important that the stakeholder community is leading the process. And what she doesn't mention is that in 2019, we had a robust, this passed in 2019. So while this is now um, something that she has voted against, in 2019, the community, um, not including Alderman Fleming, um, participated in a series of meetings that came up with what reparations could be for our city. So the community has informed our work. Um, she was on the committee in 2019 and resigned because she did not wanna work on reparations. She wanted to work on equity and I respect that. Equity plays a role in ordinary public policy, but we needed to work on reparations, something specific and targeted for the black community. She resigned from that committee and was completely absent from the process until her no vote. Um, so for that, I say, I take some defense because there were hundreds of residents that did participate and it is unfair to dismiss them for being engaged and believing that it was possible in 2019 when we passed it with uh, uh, actually a, um, the initial vote was a unanimous vote 
and the vote for funding was an eight to one vote, which she supported. So the only feedback that I have um, from Alderman Fleming was from 2019, and it was actually recommendations for housing grants is what we have. So we were really surprised to hear, um, actually not at that meeting, but by her press release that the media sent to the to the council that she was not going to be in support. Um, and, and I was disappointed that all along, I was disappointed that she did not include herself in the process as a Black woman. I couldn't have been a resident in anywhere in Evanston with a title or not, not to show up at reparation meetings to weigh in on what reparations is. That's me, but I choose to live in the fifth ward. Um, and, and so I, I, I disagree with that. I also disagree with um, the, um, the ta taxation. And so for the reason that we don't have a cash benefit right now as our first, um, as our first remedy proposal is we have to sort through how can we deliver a uh, gift that is not taxed because we're not a federal government. The IRS dictates taxation. And so there's some limitations that we're learning more about what the possibilities are for even having a cash benefit program. And then we need to also think about uh, being a municipality. What amount of resources do we have to have a fair disbursement of cash benefits that is significant enough to call it reparative? Um, I believe that cash benefits should be more of a uh, HR 40 action that is considered but we will do whatever the consensus of the community is and whatever the consensus of the city council is, because that's who governs the city of Evanston. Have there been any legal challenges yet? We did. We have, we've received our first legal challenge. It's not a lawsuit, but it is a threat of constitutionality of the work that we're doing. And we're really proud to have the support of the Howard Law School, Columbia Law School, African-American Redress Network, ACLU, um, that has contacted our city to let us know that they are available to provide any sort of pro bono legal uh, support or capacity building with our um, already amazing law department to help us address the um, legal challenges that we do have. But our law department led with a very narrowly focused case for reparation so that it did have uh, legal muster because we expect there to be challenges from outside our community. This legal challenge is from outside of the community. We fully expected to have a conservative funded legal challenge and this is what we have um, from a firm outside of the state of Illinois. Over to you, um, Liz. Okay, thank you. Uh, Alderman, uh, you said this is the beginning. Uh, I'm happy about the beginnings. So what do you see as the next step? Because like you've even mentioned, uh, part of uh, reparations that have not been addressed are in healthcare, social services, employment, education. You know, when, when we think about us as black folk, all of the areas in America, we've been written out of on purpose by federal, state, and local laws for hundreds of years. It's, it, it's unbelievable to, to me that the, the small percentage that we are in America, that money's no object when it comes to spending it to keep us in our place, because that's virtually what it is. So what are your next steps? And, and what, what, what area would that be? Would it be healthcare or education or what? So our next step is actually um, more community engagement. And the community will be will continue to direct us through 
and when I say the community, I'm saying the stakeholder community, Black folks in the community will continue to direct us to what's next. Um, I personally will um, look at our um, policies that still have racism embedded in it that we are um, enforcing. And we need to address the policy, zoning policy, housing policy, um, other programs that are um, intentionally and historically restricting the Black community. Um, and so that's something that I'll be looking at um, when I retire from office and working with the subcommittee. Um, but the, the, the legislation, we have to remember, it names three components. It names housing, economic development or businesses, and, and education initiatives, which was used broadly and not necessarily as academic curriculum, but education initiatives that could include financial education, health education, wellness, understanding more about our trauma. I believe every black person should read um, post-traumatic um, slave syndrome. We should learn more about inherited and lived um, trauma inherited in our DNA through transgenerational epigenetics. So, so next will be more community process, but we will always be looking at remedies for housing, economic development and education initiatives. That's what's in resolution 126 R19. And additionally, we need to push on our partners in town more, the business community, the education community um, to come up with programming or funding to partner in what we're doing because we cannot do this alone as one municipality. We aren't responsible as one municipality and we cannot deliver the remedy without partnership. So next will be legislation uh, reform, uh, more stakeholder involvement and more partnership development in advancing the work. To piggyback my question, has that brought on more white supremacists to jump on board uh, against blacks in your community? Have they popped up expressing their views against us? Absolutely. So my hate mail started in 2019, being called everything from a slave, a monkey, a nigga, everything, you lazy, go back to Africa, you already have reparations, it's called link card and section eight, uh, it's reverse racism. That has been going on as a continuous stream through email and social media, Tara, since 2019. I feel confident that the bulk of that is from outside of our city. We live in a very progressive and liberal town that is obviously passing reparations, um, but it's coming from national attention and we expected that as well. Okay. For those who are just joining and tuning in, we are having a wonderful conversation with the city of Evanston, Alderman Ruth Simmons, uh, who's joining us to shed light upon her groundbreaking reparations measure that was passed by the city council of Evanston. And um, in our introduction, at the beginning of the show, we did mention that there were other cities that likewise are following suit. Uh, we mentioned Amherst, Massachusetts, Providence, Rhode Island, Asheville, North Carolina, Iowa City, Iowa, Burlington, Vermont, and of course the state of California. And then religious denominations like the Episcopal Church and prominent colleges like Georgetown University in Washington we know that there are other colleges or universities in America that were built by slaves. So my question is, um, have you consulted with or have they reached out to you to sort of see what was your strategy in advancing this measure? And have you, um, are you making plans to collaborate with these other locales in a, in a more um, strategic way? Um, right now I'm very focused on um, bringing more um, 
process to our work in Evanston. And I have spoken directly with um, several cities at least, uh, maybe more, and referred them to our website as a uh, reference. Uh, but one city that I've worked very closely with having um, town hall meetings and other stakeholder meetings is Amherst, Massachusetts. And um, really excited about the direction that they're going there and looking to provide any support that I'm able to just sharing the process in which I took. I just took a very specific um, approach. It was a smart goal for me as an entrepreneur. I just used the tools that I use in advancing a business strategy in crafting this uh, innovative legislation. It was specific, measurable, attainable. It was realistic, timely, and it had all of those components so that it could be um, consumed and understood and it was palatable and it was clear on how we get to these first steps. Specifically, the injury is I had to request that from our law department who worked along with the historians to come up with Evanston specific. We can't have a case for reparations that's based on chattel enslavement and we don't have a chattel enslavement history here. So we have a case that is appropriate for our city. It was attainable because we had this sales tax revenue coming in from cannabis. We hadn't earmarked it yet. It was realistic because we have damaged the black community through our policy here in Evanston. It is historic. We have acknowledged it a hundred times over. And I wasn't up for acknowledging it again without some sort of funding and action plan to remedy it. And it was timely. It's a 10-year program initially. I hope that future city councils will expand it beyond. But I, based on what I learned in my time in municipal government, I saw what we would have the appetite for and what it would take to, to take this big first step and then begin to prove the model, begin to prove the concept of repair being possible through legislation and public funding. And here we are taking our first steps. It's not perfect. It alone is not enough. It's not, it is incomplete. And we have 10 years left to do the work. We have $9,600,000 minimum left to do the work. We have new partners like the Family Institute Initiative that recently just awarded our city a partnership with a cash benefit program. So I would love to talk more about the partners that are doing the work to help us expand the work. We just launched the cash benefit program on the 22nd, the applications opened up. The, the, the residents are being selected based on our reparation criteria. So you have to have been black, lived here during the period of injury or be a direct descendant. And you will receive $300 a month unrestricted, no need to report what you do with the money unless you choose to. And that's another really small step, but it is a step in the right direction. It's one that we can build on in the future. No, it's, it not only amazes me that you're actually doing this work and, and you've launched this program, but I'm also amazed that, that you just have the flexibility to, to make this happen. I compare uh, Evanston, Illinois to Bloomington, Indiana, because we, we are also a very progressive and liberal uh, city or town. So I could see um, our elected officials wanting to do something like this. However, Indiana uh, is not as, I guess you could say, progressive as the state of Illinois. So we could expect a smackdown from our state government if we ever moved in that direction, seriously because they, they've done it in the past. But um, correct me if I'm wrong here, my understanding is that part of what got you started was the uh, historical report that was commissioned by the city of Evanston that looked at uh, housing, employment, education, and policing. And so I'm thinking that 
whatever results they came up with, you could probably do a study in most cities across the country and come up with the same results. Um, have you been contacted by other cities who are at least trying to, to look at a reparations program or, or move in that direction? Well, absolutely. As I've stated, I've spoken to um, large groups of cities at a time to share the plan is for me, I look at it as, um, I don't want to say obvious, but it is the only legislative process that will allow us to bring repair. Uh, so in terms of every city's data is similar. As I stated, you know, ours is 13 years life, life expectancy different. Chicago is 30. Another city's might be 20. Over-policing is going to um, be, be an issue in, in every American city a wealth disparity is going to be, it all relates back to our history of slavery in this nation. So every city will have similar data, similar uh, historical um, narratives and similar historical facts. They're gonna have similar local legislation and they all enforce federal legislation that was um, oppressing the black community intentionally. So this is, I don't see where the question is on if a city should advance, repair, how they do it, where do they start? You start with your data today that shows a wealth divide, an education gap, an opportunity and information divide, and you know your history of racism. We can't deny that. And you start to repair the damages through the legislative tool called reparations. What more can we do? We've done equity and inclusion. We've done diversity. We've done procurement requirements and, and we've done resolutions and we've named buildings and streets and, and we've done all of that. We've had black mayors and black presidents and we've done everything else but reparations. So we need to have reparations as a legislative tool at every locality, at every state and at Congress with HR 40 so that we can be true to the things that we say we value for Black Lives Matter. We can be true to that with putting some funding behind a reparation policy and beginning to do the work. So yes, other cities have been in touch and they're doing their version of reparation. My challenge to every city doing it is put some funding behind it if you want to actually have some outcomes. I agree. Um, I, are any big corporations uh, behind any of this? Are you, are you getting that kind of, uh, of not uh, yet, not, not yet, but I do want to lift up two businesses in town. The first two, there are others that are considering their contributions. One is Temperance Brewery that has um, designed a uh, product just for reparations. A hundred percent of the proceeds go to our reparation fund. He used a black designer. Um, he, you know, contacted black residents and his name is Josh, uh, Josh Gilbert, and he's a white ally and friend, um, a, a, class, a classmate from high school. Maybe he was a few years older than me. We have another business, a white business that is a uh, bike shop. They are giving a percentage of their proceeds every month to the reparation fund. And then we have a dispensary in town that is looking at developing a uh, program that supports the reparation benefit that's above the 3% tax that we're receiving from their revenue. So again, it's an early stage, but I believe that big business is looking at what they're doing. They're looking beyond their ordinary uh, corporate responsibility initiatives and looking at what they can do specifically for the black community. 
Great. That's that's wonderful. That's what I want to hear. Mm -hmm. I wanted to uh, um, ask this one question as we're winding down this interview. Uh, that major metropolitan city to the uh, south of you, uh, that's headed mm -hmm. by uh, an African-American woman mayor. Um, what do you, in, and I know you're focused on Evanston, but what do you in, envision for that city? Have you heard plans that they have or have you I had have. a conversation? Okay, can you elaborate as years. much as you can? Absolutely. So the, the reparation uh, work was, um, started in 2019 also in the city of Chicago, led by Alderman Sawyer, who you should contact, and um, supported by grassroots organizing, you know, institutional. We're only talking about reparations right now because of Encobra. So let me just shout out Encobra for their historical place in launching an organization to pursue reparations for Black in America and not letting up off that goal for 34 years. They have introduced it, supported, got sponsors every year. So they've worked with the city of Chicago, Alderman Rod Sawyer. Funding for that campaign came from um, Dr. Willie Wilson. It, they, they passed a committee last summer, I believe it was July of, of 2020, and they are beginning to convene stakeholder talks. Um, the initial ask was for a commission that was funded and had uh, a budget to do the work, and that was not supported by the mayor. And of course, that's disappointing because I believe in reparations and most Black folks do. Um, but they're working towards a path now under the leadership of Alderman Stephanie Coleman, who um, covers part of Inglewood on the south side of Chicago, who you should contact. And they are working with the stakeholder community to develop what reparations will look like for their city. But the city of Chicago, there's no reason why there shouldn't be a robust, substantial, multi-billion dollar uh, budget for actionable programming towards reparations. And I believe that with the leadership that they have and the growing awareness of anti-Blackness and the damages that there will be support enough for them to advance something that is tangible. You mentioned Encobra. Um, can you give us a brief, a brief history on this organization? Sure. And I, um, I learned about Encobra in 2019 after I made my introduction. It made all the difference for me because I got, and our city received a lot of education on reparations. Encobra is a national coalition for reparations for Black in America, Blacks in America. It was founded 34 years ago by a group of um, attorneys and other revolutionary activists, uh, academics and economists and grassroots leaders to pursue reparations. Um, Rep. John Conyers was their partner in advancing it through Congress. And today they remain not having a year absent avoid from the reparation discussion. They are led by national co-chair Cam Howard, who is a Southside Chicago resident and shows up everywhere. Southside Chicago, he was <clears throat> very involved in the Evanston uh, work, <clears throat> coming to our city physically, educating members, providing tools. He even wrote a pamphlet, which you can get on Amazon. It's called Laying the Foundation for Local Reparations. Um, but they alone have been an institution driving the reparation discussion since the 80s under Rep Conyers. There is another organization that was convened in, 19, in 2015 by Dr. Ron Daniels, NARC, it's the National African-American Reparation Commission. And they are working as an authority to support other cities and to support the advancement of HR 40 as well. Recently, uh, the White House Press Secretary, Jen Psaki, 
indicated that President Biden was at least interested in forming a commission to look at reparations. In your opinion, is that a sufficient place to start at, at the uh, at the federal level? And have you been in has there been any communication to Evanston from the White House? There's been no uh, presidential communication with Evanston. Um, we, I do have a relationship with Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee as it relates to HR 40. Um, and is it a sufficient place to start? We'll take it. Of course, I would have loved that quote to have been the study and funding of reparations, yeah, but we'll take yeah. it at the study because if you do an adequate study, I'm very confident that uh, the, the, the takeaway with any sort of uh, true intentions is gonna be funding for repair. And I, I'm gonna take that, that he supports the study. We have a, a vice president who was one of the original co-sponsors for S40, which was the first Senate companion bill ever for HR 40. And now we have the second Senate companion bill introduced by Cory Booker and it is um, S40. Actually the first one was S10, this, this one is S40 and it has co-sponsors. Our Congress people support both the Senate Companion Bill and the um, HR 40. So Congresswoman Joukowsky, Senator Dick Durbin, Senator um, Tammy Duckworth are all original co-sponsors of both pieces of legislation. How impactful uh, was the summer of peaceful protests towards momentum behind this measure? It was helpful. Again, we passed ours in 2019. Quietly, you know, there were some stakeholders involved, some allies that supported, but in the um, the experiences of 2020, it and, and us being quarantined, you know, all eyes were on uh, the racism towards the black community in this community and this nation with um, racial terror. So it got our ally community really, really engaged in learning more about their own place in sustaining our conditions and how they might make a difference. And so the immediate response is, wow, we are doing reparations in our city. What more can we do? And the community is already intentionally uh, mobilizing. Where can we support Black businesses? Is there a Black business for this? You know, supporting more Black candidates. We're in an election season right now for school board. Um, so reparations is beginning to happen here in Evanston because we named it and we passed it and we funded it and we committed to taking the first steps. It's been such a healing um, for our community and such a place of growth as we've all begun to learn together. And I give credit to the peaceful protests of 2020 that brought awareness right to our living rooms with media, television, social media, and so on. I would like for you, and I think I, 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 we have, I hope we have enough time for this question, is could you address the white audience as to why they should not be fearful of this, of reparations? for African-Americans. I would like to book another hour on your show. <laughs> to actually talk to the and, white and we'll people. go ahead and schedule that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but quickly, um, you know, I'll get it. I'll say this. Uh, if, if the moral argument alone isn't enough for you to say to, to yes to reparations, if you, if you aren't aware of um, the privilege of being white in this nation and the privileges that you inherited, whether it be wealth or access to opportunity through um, your whiteness, that let's just look at the benefit for the entire city. And I hate to reduce it to that because I really wish the moral argument alone was enough. But we can look at the benefit for the entire community and for this nation if you're talking about HR 40. With Black folks repaired, we have access to empowerment, we have access to wealth, 
We, and so that's going to create more Black businesses, more Black businesses create more jobs. All that increases the tax base. Black people working and healthy in business create for healthy families. Healthy families make great neighborhoods and great cities. Black people with more wealth and repair and, and health uh, resources are going to have more college degrees, which means higher attainment in employment. Um, they're going to have, um, you know, healthier relate. We're going to have healthier relationships. All this makes for a positive economic impact and social impact for our city. Again, I hate to reduce it to that, but some is going to take that. One of the reports that emboldened me to be able to move forward was this case. It was a, a cost of segregation report that was done by the Metropolitan Planning Council. It was based on the city of Chicago, and it showed how if we did repair our segregation and our racism, how it would immediately benefit the city of Chicago by, I think the number was $8 billion. I have to look at the report, it's been like two years. So it showed that if we begin to do the work, how the tax um, base increases, how you know neighborhoods are safer, families are healthier, communities are brighter, and we're all enjoying the same livability as one another. Uh, so, so, so to the white listeners, um, there's something in it for you too. If justice isn't enough, there's something in it for you too. But I believe that you have listeners that just want justice. They want to do what's right. They want to um, make the, the wrongs and our history right by repair and justice in an actionable way. And that and action includes funding. There's no way around it. You can't program your way out of this. Somewhere there has to be some money involved. Now, if it's going to be direct cash payments or direct benefits or programming, I believe a combination of all of them are necessary. But the work can't be done with the Black community alone. We all got here um, together. The white community must take a leadership role in, um, in, in crafting opportunities to resource these programs. And we yes. are counting on our white allies like we did in the civil rights era, like we did in passing the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. We didn't do that alone as Black people. And our allies in Evanston have been hugely valuable in us getting to this place in history. Okay, and unfortunately, that is all we have time for. Alderman Ruth Simmons, uh, we, we're going to take you up on that hour that you offered uh, <laughs> because we would really love to see how uh, your program is, is progressing some at some point in the future. With that said, so if you do do another, I'm sorry, are we still on air? Yeah. Yes. Okay, sorry about that. I was That's just going to okay. recommend following up with um, Ecobra and Alderman Stephanie Coleman to learn more about the work that's being done. Okay, and we'll get those names from you. Um, that said, we want to thank City of Evanston Alderman Ruth Simmons for joining us to shed light on her groundbreaking reparations measure passed by the City Council of Evanston, thus making Evanston the first U.S. city to make reparations available to its Black residents for past discrimination and the lingering effects of slavery. Welcome to Dark Past, Bright Future. Lessons in African-American history that you won't read about in any textbook. Telling the stories of the struggle of those who came before us to build a better path to a brighter future for all of us. I am a woman that came from the cotton fields of the South. I was promoted from there to the wash tub. Then I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. Everybody told me that I was making a big mistake by going into this business, but I know how to grow hair 
as well as I know how to grow cotton, Madam C.J. Walker. With little or no opportunity when Sarah Breedlove started out in life, she became the first female self-made millionaire in America. Sarah Breedlove was the one and only incomparable Madam C.J. Walker. Who would imagine that a person born in 1867 lost both parents by the age of seven, married three times, the first time being at age 14, gave birth to a daughter, became a widow at age 20, remarries, divorces, then marries Charles Joseph Walker, divorces again, and she is a black woman with only three months of formal education. Now, how do you attain success with that? Here are three quotes from Madam Walker that might give you an insight. I gave myself a start by giving myself a start. I'm not ashamed of my past. I'm not ashamed of my humble beginning. If I have accomplished anything in life, it is because I have been willing to work hard, in quotes. Sarah suffered from severe dandruff and other scalp ailments, including baldness. When she developed a formula to help her own condition, she knew she was onto something that would change the way Black women groomed and styled their hair. She marketed herself as Madam C.J. Walker, independent hairdresser and retailer of cosmetic creams. Sarah started out selling her products door to door. She opened a beauty salon. Then she established training programs in the Walker system that would allow Black women economic independence. She set up a national network of licensed sales agents who earn healthy commissions. In 1910, Walker relocated her business to Indianapolis, Indiana, where she built a factory, hair salon, beauty school, and a laboratory to help with the research. She included in that building a movie theater. Many of her employees, including those in key management positions, were women. During the height of her career, Walker and her company employed several thousand women as sales agents. Walker began organizing her sales agents into state and local clubs. She had annual conferences and would give prizes to women who had sold the most products. Now, what company does that sound like today? If you guessed Mary Kay, you are correct, thus making Madam C.J. Walker's strategy for success still effective today. On a personal note, Madam Walker provided opportunity for Black children to have a place to see movies. One of those children was me. I was born and raised in Indianapolis during an era when the words no, don't, you can't, whites only, and Negroes served in the back were prevalent. We would have not have gotten the opportunity to experience viewing movies if it had not been for the Walker Theater. As a child, being inside that majestic theater with its rare African death row styling, featuring African shields and spears, this provided me with a place to escape from the oppressive world that I lived in. The Walker Building is one of the few structures left of what was known as the Harlem of Indianapolis. It was surrounded by black neighborhoods spanning over 400 acres on the northwest side of Indianapolis, which is now IUPUI. Madam C.J. Walker, entrepreneur, philanthropist, political and social activist, 
gave one of the largest donations to the NAACP anti-lynching fund. She also contributed large amounts of funds to many other organizations. And on another note, just this week at Indianapolis International Airport, they unveiled a 72 foot long mural to honor Madam C.J. Walker. Thank you and this concludes this segment of Dark Past, Bright Future. You've been listening to Dark Paths, Bright Future, exploring the many different shades of African-American history because the true history of our people is more complex than black and white. In the words of the Negro National Hymn, sing a song full of the hope that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. We will make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. This email address again is bringiton at wfhb.org. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send that info directly to our staff. Or if you want additional info about tonight's guests, you can contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer and tonight's co-contributor is Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is William Hosea. Our consultant and WFHB News Department director is Cade Young. Our program engineer is Shaw Tom LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamal Ephraim with additional background tracks by David Baker. With for WFHB, I'm Liz Mitchell. And I'm William Hosea. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.